If you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges 19. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's some Bibles at the, the back tables. Uh, feel free to pick one of those up and please bring your Bibles and study along with us as we study God's Word. A little disclaimer for this uh, morning's study is uh, children are welcome uh, in our services. Every once in a while when we go through the Word of God verse by verse and chapter by chapter, uh, these are Bible studies that are geared towards uh, adults. So this study is really not uh, suitable for five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, nine-year-olds. I'll leave it at your discretion as uh, parents, but this is a chapter in the Bible that you probably want to go through with them when you feel like it's uh, age-appropriate. This is one of the more difficult chapters uh, in, in the Bible. Some of you are like, what are we getting into? You're going to find out. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you even for the more uh, challenging sections of scripture. We know that all scripture is inspired by you, that you have things for us to learn, and there's things that we wouldn't understand if we didn't have this chapter. So would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to understand? Or would you quiet our hearts this morning? Send your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember August 1st, 2007, a bridge collapsed in Minnesota. It was the fifth busiest bridge in the state of uh, Minnesota. It goes over the Mississippi River. They averaged 140,000 cars a day. It was rush hour traffic, and this bridge collapsed. It was done. 13 people died that day. 145 people were injured, and the cause of the collapse of this bridge was a design flaw. It wasn't a bridge that was 100 years old. It was a bridge that was built in 1961. And all of a sudden, bam, it was, it was collapsed. And what we find in the book of Judges, a collapsing of society. It's a collapsing of individuals. How does a society get to this place of what we're going to read this morning? Well, it's a process of what we've read over the last several months, if you've studied with us. The book of Judges is all about the destruction of idolatry. The children of Israel would be in a place of blessing. Things are going well. They would drift away from the Lord, start serving idols. God in his love would bring discipline, turn them over to be in bondage to the nations around them cry out to God, God would raise up a deliverer called a judge, then things would get good again, and all of a sudden they would go back into idolatry. In these last few chapters of Judges, this phrase begins to be used, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So idolatry brought about this independence from God, where I'm not doing what's right in his eyes, I'm doing what's right in my own eyes, and we see this destruction that took place. I'd like to inform you as we go through Judges 19 that we don't see any parallels to our own culture, but unfortunately, I think we find many parallels from Judges 19 to our own culture. So we're going to look at the collapse in Judges 19, a collapse in our own society, but most importantly, we're going to ask ourselves difficult questions as we go through this, and we look at these different collapses. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 19. And it came to pass in those days... When there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, 
God gives us an introduction to this chapter by saying there's no king in Israel. There's no leadership in the the nation of Israel, resulting then with no accountability. And leadership, godly leadership, is important in our lives and in society. We need good godly leaders in government. We need good godly leaders in education. We need godly leaders in the church. We need godly leaders in the business sector. We need godly leaders in the medical community. We need godly leadership inside of the home. And what this verse is saying is there's no king. There's, there's, there's no leadership. So everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Proverbs tells us when there is godly leaders that the land is blessed, that the country is blessed. And Israel is in this place where they don't have the leadership. You may be wondering, when Israel does have a king, do things get better? No. Even at times in Israel's history when they had a good king, ultimately Israel continued to struggle with idolatry. Judges and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles all point to Jesus Christ, that we need a king who's also our savior. We need the one that can transform our hearts and transform our lives. We focus in upon a Levite. Why does God do this in this section of Judges? If you remember last week's study, it was another Levite, a Levite who practiced idolatry with the house of Micah, then that affected the whole entire clan, tribe of the Danites. Once again, God's focusing in upon a Levite. Levites were to be spiritual leaders. God had set it up that way. So God's giving us a snapshot. He's giving us a portrait of the heart of Israel by taking a look at the life of the spiritual leaders. If you want to get a good idea of the spiritual climate of a culture, look at the spiritual leaders. If you want to get a good idea of where America is at today, look at the pastors of the United States of America. I know that's a difficult thing to say, being a pastor, but judgment starts in the house of God. That's where it begins. It begins with the spiritual leaders, and that's why God hones in on this Levite. That's why God's telling us this story about him. So what does he do? He's in the mountains of Ephraim, which is up north, He goes down to Judah, which is the south, and he has a concubine. Now, what is a concubine? A concubine is a legal mistress. So he would have a wife, and now he's got a concubine where it was a legal mistress, but she didn't have the status of being a wife in the home or in society. Now, let me ask you, good decision, bad decision? Bad decision. Great answer. This is a bad decision. This is not God's heart or intent for marriage. How do we know what God's intent for marriage was? Is marriage man-made or is it an institution that was created by God? It's created by God. God created marriage. He created Adam. He created Eve. One man with one woman for life. That was God's intent for marriage. And so this Levite, he is now going away from God's design and intent for marriage. It's one of the Achilles heels throughout the Old Testament. A lot of the men in the Old Testament had concubines. Abraham had concubines. We find David had concubines. Solomon had concubines. And every time that you see that, it never went well. Whenever we get outside of one man with one woman for life, we complicate God's design for marriage. Let's see what happens next in verse 2. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four whole months. So she goes and she plays 
the harlot. So the first thing that we see this morning, if you're taking notes, this first area that's collapsing inside of Israel is the collapse of marriage. The collapse of marriage. We're given this as an understanding of what's happening with marriages throughout Israel. Here's a, here's a Levite, and he's got his wife, but now he's got a concubine too. And the concubine, then she goes and she's playing, playing the harlot. Their marriage is an absolute mess. Now let's look at our culture and our society. Is marriage a mess? Absolutely. It's a, it's a complete mess. Here's my theory. Here's what I want you to, to catch this morning, okay? I'm going to throw it to you and you catch it right there. You got it. Is the further that we get away from God, the further that these areas collapse, so when we get away from God, marriage begins to collapse inside of, of a society. So why is marriage such a big deal? Maybe you're saying, you know, I, I don't understand why Christians talk so much about marriage. And I'm kind of getting tired of hearing this discussion about marriage. And I know it's a, a really being talked around the country. And I'm just kind of don't understand why it's a big deal. Well, let me try to tell you why it's a big deal from God's perspective is because when God created Adam and Eve, he said that we were created in his image and that we together bear the image of God. So when a man and wife come together inside of the commitment of marriage, they're actually declaring the person of God. So if marriage gets destroyed in a society, the testimony of who God is gets destroyed inside of a society. That's why it's a big deal to God. And then in Ephesians 5, God tells us that a Christian marriage illustrates Christ and the church. That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That wives are to submit to their husbands, respect their husbands, the way the church submits to Christ. Our billboard to a Christ-rejecting world is marriage. That's the way that we declare the gospel is through a godly marriage. So Satan has an agenda. You know what his agenda is? He wants to take a permanent marker and just totally etch out, cover up the concept of marriage so that everyone's confused. No one has an idea of what marriage should be because what's at stake? The image of God and the testimony of Christ and the church. If you're married and you desire to have impact for Christ, you know where you start? Your marriage. That's the strongest testimony that you have, that you can declare. That's going to attract people to Jesus Christ. So here's the question. As we go through these things, I'm going to ask us personal questions to apply as we're going through. Not just at the conclusion of the message. Is what's your view of marriage? Everybody's got one, single or married. You have a view of marriage. Some of you may be saying, it's overrated, it's not worth it, why would I get married, I'll just live together, or I'm not going to mess with it at all. Some of you may have the perspective of, yeah, I'm into marriage, but I'm into marriage for what I can gain. I don't want to spend my life alone. There's companionship in marriage, there's mutual happiness in marriage. So what is your view, honestly? Not what should your view be, but what is your view? What's the reality of, of your view of marriage? And then the next question, is your view biblical? Do you have a biblical view of marriage? So the biblical view of marriage is male and female, Adam and Eve, created to be in a loving, committed relationship for a lifetime. That's where you have to start. That's the biblical view and concept of marriage from 
God's perspective, then marriage is for life. It really is for life because it represents Christ in the church. Christ doesn't give up on the church. It's unconditional. It's a relationship that continues. So marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is to last a lifetime. Marriage for the purpose is to declare the glory of God. And that may be a new perspective for you or a refresher. You need to say, okay, I need to refresh my browser and get a new perspective on marriage. God didn't create marriage first and foremost for your happiness. He created it to declare his glory. When I have that perspective of marriage, of saying I want to love Amber in a way that's going to glorify God, it puts it upon Christ instead of a self-focus. But I think we can see the decay and the collapse of marriage in Judges 19. We can also see it in our own society. So here's a practical application. Am I investing in my marriage? Have you just stopped investing? Have you gotten a little bit lazy in your relationship? Began to take your spouse for granted. When was the last time you went out of your way to do something special for your spouse? Are you praying for your spouse? Do you, do you value your marriage? Make those, make those investments. Also, can I encourage you, would you write this down? Would you pray for the marriages of the body of Christ? Would you pray for the marriages of, of RMC? Because Satan's going to attack the marriages of this church. Why? Because he wants to destroy this image of Christ and the church. If you're single, pray for the marriages of this church. If you're single, start investing in your marriage. If you have a heart to be married someday, start investing now. Start praying for your future spouse. Set yourself aside in purity for your spouse. A good marriage doesn't start the day that you get married. It starts now as you're investing in your spouse. Let's invest in our marriages. Let's pray for marriages. Let's ask that God would protect and and bless marriage. Verse 3, let's continue on. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. If you are in a situation where now there is adultery inside of your marriage, Know and understand that that doesn't have to be the end of your marriage. God can restore. God can rebuild. This Levite, he comes and he tries to win his wife back and speak kindly to her. There has to be repentance. There has to be change. There has to be transformation. But there's an opportunity for God to rebuild that marriage, to bring life where there's death. Verse 4, now his father-in-law, the young woman's father... That makes sense, right? Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him. And he stayed with him three days so that he ate and drank and lodged there. He's just meeting his father-in-law. So he's enjoying this time. They spend three days together. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with the morsel of bread and afterward go your way. So he sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to him, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. So they're they're intending to go. They wake up early. They know they've got a long travel. But then they start just enjoying some food, some conversation, and it's after lunch. So why don't you just stay and spend the night? Verse 7, And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. 
Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon and both of them ate. So this is procrastination at its finest, right? Let's just put this off and put this off and find themselves staying another day. Verse 9. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early so that you may get home. We're starting to wonder if tomorrow will ever come. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he arose and departed and came to opposite Jabesh, that is Jerusalem. With them were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was with him. He leaves late because of this procrastination. They knew that they were to leave early, that there was dangers in their journey, but instead they leave late and will find that they put their own personal safety at great risk because of this. It was like several years ago when I went to Uganda to do a pastor's conference and also uh, the girl that we sponsor as a family was in this area of Uganda. Uh, Her name is Doreen and so we arranged a visit and I was supposed to go up into the mountains to visit her and and her, her family but the pastor's conference went long. Imagine that. I mean, whose fault was that? My fault. I taught too long. Pastor Jeff, he taught too long. And so I was going to go up in the evening into the mountains, and the churches that we were working with said, Eric, it's not safe for you to go up into the mountains. You know, being American, kind of stand out. If you go up there, your, your safety's going to be at jeopardy. But it's safe for Doreen to travel so we'll bring her down and she'll, she'll come and visit you. And we had, had a great visit. But they knew that it wasn't safe to travel at night. And there's some reason that they're getting up early in the morning. That they're getting up in the morning for a purpose. They know that their, their travels are going to be best and safest during the day. But because of this procrastination, they're now leaving in the afternoon. Let me ask you a question. Is this section of scripture in here for a reason? Is every part of scripture God breathed, if there's something for us to learn from every section of scripture? Yes. So what is it? I think that we find in these verses a collapse of wisdom, a collapse of wisdom. There's a collapse of marriage, but here's a collapse of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. It's not enough to just know I need to leave early in the morning. Wisdom actually does it. Does your car have a gas light in it? Any of you guys have a gas light in your car? No, none of you? Okay. Have you ever heard it called an idiot light? Anybody ever heard it called that? The reason it's called an idiot light is once it goes on, if you don't stop to get gas and you run out of gas, you're an idiot. And I have been an idiot on multiple occasions. So when I bought my car, my 92 Honda Accord, and, and got it used, I read the owner's manual, still had the owner's manual. 17-gallon tank. It's a pretty big tank for a, for a Honda Accord. At 14 gallons of gas, the gas light goes on. Do you know what that means? I still have three gallons of gas. So I begin to do the math of miles per gallon and how far I can go and stretch it because I don't have time to stop and get gas. And lo and behold, I run out of gas. See, that's a collapse of wisdom. That's not applying 
the things that I know. I know I'm running low on gas. So wisdom says, I'm going to go and get gas. Here's the, another truth to catch. The further that we get from Christ, the further we get from wisdom. The further we get from Christ, the further we get from wisdom. Let's look at this from a society level. Now I'm just going to share my heart with you of what I am seeing. I'm concerned for our country on many levels because we've departed from Christ and so we've departed from common sense. We've departed from wisdom. We're just doing things as a country that don't make any sense. We know when we take something that has a profit. It's some, something that is a business that's taking place that offers a service in our country and it's running a profit. Once we hand that over to the government to run it, it runs at a deficit. Every single time it runs at a deficit. Our government is really good at running things in debt. But what do we keep doing? We take taking things out of the private sector and we keep putting it into the government. That doesn't make sense to me. There's no common sense in that. Why? We've departed from wisdom. We've departed from Christ. And so now we're making decisions where there's not a lot of common sense. Our country was built upon freedom. And one of the freedoms is the people have a voice. And in states throughout our country, like the state of Colorado, we have votes through a democratic process where we decide what our state constitution is. Then you have judges that are saying what the states have decided, what the people have decided is unconstitutional. You have judges that are practicing tyranny. Judges that are saying that they're the ultimate authority and the people are losing their voice. Do you know how hard historically our country worked to make sure the people have a voice and that your vote absolutely matters? We're departing from common sense because we're departing from Christ. Now this is just my personal view. I'm concerned for the education of our children. We, we've, I just found out this week that in our local public schools, in elementary school, we're no longer teaching our kids history. They get very little history. You might be interested to find out if you go into your local public school with your third grader and ask them what they're learning, what the actual curriculum is. What are they learning in history? And it was probably very, very little. Now, why does that concern me? Because if we don't understand our history, we have no direction for our future. Our youth don't understand where we come from and what's the important part of our country. Many of you probably realize that in Colorado, now our education has been taken from the state level and it's gone to the government level. It's called Common Core. And the very basic of that means that the decisions for our children's education now is made at a federal level instead of at a state level, which means you have no voice into your child's education. You don't like the curriculum that's being taken place in the school? Guess what? You can't just go to the state officials now and try to get that change. You've got to go to the federal level to get that change. Now, I simply bring these things up to point out the fact that we're losing wisdom in our culture. We're losing wisdom in these levels of society because we've departed from Christ. I, I don't do it to be mean. I don't do it to try to get on my hobby horse. I'm just saying from my perspective, I'm seeing things that concern me that we're moving away from good wisdom. But now let's get personal a little bit because it's, it's easy to, to look at things at a larger level, at a government level, and see where there's a lack of wisdom. But how about my life? Am I 
seeking after godly wisdom? Is it important to me in my life? Can I look at how I make my decisions and see that I'm going to the Lord and I'm going to, to Scripture? As we'll find in Judges 19, this seems like a small thing that they left late in the day, but it ends up being a huge thing. And life's made up of a whole bunch of seemingly small decisions that have big consequences. So we desperately need God's wisdom in our lives. James 1 tells us that God will give wisdom liberally to those who ask in faith. He's longing to give it more than I'm longing to receive it if we'll go to him for wisdom. I think we can agree individually we need God's wisdom. As a country, we need God's wisdom. And verse 11, they were near Jebush, and that and the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, come please and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. This is Jerusalem. Israel didn't occupy Jerusalem till the time of David. So the Jebusites are occupying Jerusalem. The Levite servant saying this would be a good place to lodge. Verse 12, but his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go to Gibeah, saying, no, it's not safe for us to be with these foreigners. We're going to go to an Israelite city. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. So they left late. Now they find themselves not being able to make the full journey, and they have to stay in one of these cities. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in to judge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Come into Gibeah, into this Israelite city, no place to stay, no one will take them in. As a society gets away from Christ, another collapse is a collapse of concern. There's a collapse of marriage, there's a collapse of wisdom, but then there's a, a collapse of concern because a society is filled with selfish people. It's I rule. I'm going to do whatever's right in my own eyes, so this doesn't benefit me. And they come into this city, and, and nobody wants to take them in. No one's willing to say, why don't you come and stay in my house tonight? How did Jesus live his life? He lived his life being moved with compassion. He saw needs, and he was moved with compassion. He took action upon it. One of the things that we need to be careful of in our hearts and our lives is are we being calloused towards the needs of others? Are we self-focused, or do we have a heart to serve? So here's the application question. Do I have a genuine concern for others? Do I have a genuine concern for others? If we simply go with culture... If we simply go with our own sinful flesh, it's not going to result in a concern for others. But Christ, the great servants of the New Testament, they had a love and a concern for others to give, to serve, to, to meet needs. There's one man here that has his eyes open in verse 16. Just then, an old man came in from his work in the field at evening. He was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah. Whereas the, the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? That phrase, he raised his eyes and he saw. If we're going to meet needs, we have to see needs. If we're going through life looking at our own shoes, 
literally and figuratively, where all we're concerned about is our own path, our own needs. We're never going to see the needs around us. So many of the amazing things in the book of Acts happened because the early church was doing life with their eyes open, their heads raised. Peter comes in and he sees the man who's begging. And his attention is drawn to this man. And ultimately, this man's healed. Thousands come to know Christ, all because Peter saw him. As we're going through our days, the Holy Spirit's going to bring a person to our attention. Uh, why, why am I focused in upon this person? Why have they gotten my attention? Because God wants to do something. It's a time to ask questions. My tendency, apart from Christ moving into my life, is to be self-focused. See the needs around you. What's going on in your neighborhood? What's going on in your workplace? What's going on in your, in your own family? What's going on in this church this morning? You know, as we come and go and we're making our way, there might be some people around us that are really hurting, that need us to spend an extra five minutes. It's a good way to live life. He raised his eyes. He saw the needs. He starts to ask questions. So he said to him, we are passing from Bethany and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I'm going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we both have straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. He knew it wasn't safe to be in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave him fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, bring out, bring out the man whom came to your house, that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. So here they are in the house of this old man. He was from Ephraim as well. So he opens up his home. The evening's winding down and all of a sudden there's this wicked mob at the door. It's this wicked mob of, of men and they want to know this foreigner. They see that this foreigner has come into town and these men want to rape him. They, they want to have a relationship with him. They're saying, you, you deliver him to me. And the old man says, no, don't do this, this wicked thing. It's very similar to what we see with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're wondering how an individual gets to this place, how we get to this place of depravity, come on Wednesday night. We just started the book of Romans. And to, on Wednesday night, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. We're going to cover the second half of Romans 1. And we're going to see the downward spiral of, of depravity. What's the collapse here? Well, what's fallen apart? This is a men of Israel. These aren't foreigners. These are God's chosen people. How does this group of men get to this place? There's a collapse of virtue. There's a collapse of virtue. Virtue is moral excellence, goodness, and righteousness. Let me read that again. Moral excellence, goodness, and righteousness. Can we see the collapse of virtue in our society? 
Absolutely, in all areas of life. Not just one specific area, but in all areas of morality. But once again, let's look at our own hearts and our own lives. How important is it to us for there to be moral excellence, for there to be goodness, for there to be righteousness? We're not doing those things to try to earn or deserve salvation. Salvation comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there a place then for moral righteousness in our lives? Absolutely, as worship unto the Lord. In Amos 5, 21 through 24, I read this yesterday in my devotions, and it really showed me the heart that God has for righteousness. I'll read it to you. It says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Isn't that amazing? God's saying, I hate your worship services. I hate Passover. I hate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I hate your songs. Why? Because there wasn't a life of righteousness behind the worship. And God addresses this. And he says, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. God says to his people, I want you to return to righteousness and justice. It matters to God. It might not get you a promotion. It might actually hurt your job, could hurt your education. There's a cost that comes with it, but it matters to God, justice and righteousness. So we find a collapse of of virtue in these verses. This is where the section gets very difficult. Verse 24. Look here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man do not do such a vile thing. The old man says, here's my daughter. She's a virgin. You can have her. Here's the man's concubine. You can have her, but don't do this vile thing. And some Bible commentators, maybe you've heard this over the years, have said things like it's a culture of hospitality, and when someone comes into your home, their protection is your honor. And so that's why he's doing this. That's why he's offering up his daughter instead of offering up this man. That may have been the culture, but it doesn't make it right. You know, it's, we can't excuse this away because, because it was culture. And then look what happens in the next verse. But the men would not heed him, so the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Can you believe this? The Levite takes his concubine and he says, here, you, you can have her. He puts her into this group of rapists to spare his own life. It's a collapse of protection. It's a collapse of protection. As we get further and further from Christ, we see a collapse of biblical manhood. Part of the role that God has given to men in the family and in society is that we should be providers and we should be protectors. Men, it's our honor and it's our duty to protect our wives and our children. If there's danger that comes into our families, we don't turn over our wife and say, look, take her to save our own neck. God forbid. We stand up and we say, no, I'm going to protect my family in every way possible. 
I'm going to die trying, but you're not going to take my daughter. You're not going to take my wife. And it almost seems like now if men take that place of protecting their families, it's something that we have to apologize for. Men, don't apologize for it. If junk's going on in your kids' school and your kid's getting taken advantage of, you go in and be your kid's advocate because they're your child and you don't apologize. If you've got a junior high daughter and some junior high boy sends her an inappropriate text, you grab that cell phone and you text back to this boy and say, this is her dad and I'm coming over to your house. You don't talk to my daughter this way. And you don't apologize for it. You don't say, it's wrong for me to protect my kids. It's wrong for me to protect my wife. You have to understand this. No one else is out there for the protection of your wife. No one else is out there for the protection of your kids. That's our job. That's our role. We say, okay, God, I want to step up to that place. And Lord, would you help me to be able to fulfill this? One of the things that I've seen in, in other countries, in third world countries, is there's a collapse of manhood to the point where men are doing this exact thing in Judges 19. Men are taking their daughters and prostituting their daughters for some of their basic needs. Threat comes into the family and they say, well, here, here you go, just, just have the, the family. And we're beginning to see some of those same things in the United States of America. And it shouldn't be. As men get close to Christ, they're going to become Christ-like. When we depart from Christ, then we're going to depart from Christ's character. There's a collapse here of protection. Men, here's a question for us. Am I protecting my wife and children in a way that would honor God? Am I protecting my wife and children in a way that would honor God? This starts with our families, but I think it extends out. Men, as we see women and children in our church and in our community that in harm's way, we shouldn't turn a blind eye. We should seek to bring that protection. We should seek to rally around in those times. Verse 26, Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. So she comes and she just collapses at the door after all of this abuse for all night. And the sun is beginning to, to rise. When her master arose in the morning, he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. There was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He never went out to even see if she was okay. It almost appears that he just went in and slept for the evening. And then this verse just bothers me so much in verse 28. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. He's like, just get up, you'll be fine. Let's get going. There's no like, How, are you okay? What happened? Just, nope, get up, come on, you're going to be okay. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. So when he asked this question, there's no answer. She's died, and he picks her up and places her on her donkey. Verse 29, when he, when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all of the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and 
speak up. He takes his dead concubine, he cuts her into 12 pieces, and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. Why does he do this? I believe because he felt it was the only way that he could get the attention of Israel. If he didn't do this, no one would care that this woman got raped to death. No response. And unfortunately, this is where I think we see the most depravity in our society is it the violence, the wickedness, it doesn't affect us anymore. And unless there's some gross display of the wickedness, we turn a blind eye to it. And some, unless something really shocks us to get our attention, it's just become commonplace. Could you imagine if I would have read this chapter 50 years ago? The kind of shock that, that it would get? But this kind of stuff happens now. This is the kind of stuff that you read in the news that that is taking place, and it seems to lose its shock. It seems to lose its effect. And so for us, there's a lot to apply in this section of Scripture. I think for us to look and say, is there been a collapse in marriage, a collapse in wisdom, a collapse of concern, a collapse of virtue, a collapse of protection, and examine our own lives. But there's also hope in this chapter and you're saying I don't see it you have to read the book of Ruth because the book of Ruth is written in the time period of the judges Ruth lived in the same time period and Ruth is the story of God's redemption for Ruth individually but also for Israel and ultimately for you and me how did it work a family left Israel because of a famine they go to Moab their sons get married Ruth is a Moabitess. Both of the boys, the husbands die. So Ruth goes back to Israel with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And ultimately, she's then redeemed by Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer. It's a picture of redemption, ultimately pointing to Christ. In their marriage, Ruth and Boaz go on to have children that becomes the line of David, which becomes the line of Jesus. See, God, in the midst of this chaos of Judges 19, he says, I'm going to redeem Israel, and I'm going to redeem all of humanity with the gift of my son. He brings about the lineage of Jesus Christ at this point in Israel's history. This shows the love of God, but God demonstrated his love towards us and while we were yet sinners. Isn't that powerful? I would almost think with things like this happening that God would say, enough of Israel, Enough of all of humanity. This was a giant mistake, but it's at this point that God says, I'm going to give my son. The lineage of Jesus Christ is going to come through Ruth, the, Mo- the Moabitess. As we take communion, the worship team's going to come back out, and there's communion in the back if you're towards the back. There's communion here in the front. And you're going to come and take of the elements and go back to a quiet place in the sanctuary. And I want you to do this. Is I want you to reflect on two things. One, is God's love for the world. God's love for the world. It's such a simple verse, but it's mind-blowing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know the chaos of our country. You know the chaos of our world. And as you hold communion this morning to go, God, you love the world. God, you love this mess. You love this collapse. And you want to bring people to Jesus Christ. Mind-blowing. But then also to realize that God demonstrated his own love while we were yet sinners, 
There's collapse in our own lives. There's things that have absolutely fallen down. The bridge has fallen down. And to do business with the Lord and to apply his broken body, to apply his shed blood. And as you have the elements, take the elements on your own as you feel ready. And when you're done with communion, feel free to head on with your morning. And let's stand together and, and pray and prepare for communion. Father, as we've gone through this uh, difficult chapter, Lord, we see the collapse in our society. We see the collapse in our own country. God, we pray for, for our country. We're thankful for it. We pray that there would be repentance and returning to you, that your spirit would move and bring so many people to the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that there's hope for America and it's the blood of Jesus that you love the world, that you gave your son to bring about redemption and, and salvation. Would you help us to see the world through the lens of the cross and, and the blood of Jesus? God, the collapse in our own lives, Lord, would you minister to us as we take communion? Lord, for those that don't know Christ, that haven't yet come to you, we pray that you would show them their need for Jesus Christ.